0: Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation features George Haddad. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing and literary culture. My name's Andrew Popel. Each week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. This is our broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunangara people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. These are unceded lands. Treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Today on the show, I'm joined by George Haddad. He's a writer, artist, and doctoral candidate at the Writing Society Research Centre at Western Sydney University. And George joins us with his new novel, Losing Face. Losing Face is a story about family. Joey's 19, young and directionless. His tater, Elaine, feels old and wonders at the directions her life has taken her in. Elaine worries about Joey, where he's heading. The friends Joey hangs out with aren't the sort you bring home to meet your parents. His job isn't taking him anywhere and his true friends are busy with uni. Joey feels like he has more to offer, but he's a spectator in his own life and that's about to lead him into a terrible situation one that will change many lives, a moment that he won't be able to take back. Join me as we discover George Haddad's losing face. Hey, George, I think it's just connected us. Hi. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? I am really good. I'm so excited to be chatting. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank
1: you. No, I'm so glad you uh,
0: had some interest in the book. Before we get started... This is not something I would b- b- be part of the interview. I just want to say, like, I read this book like I haven't read a book for ages. Like this <laughs> the, the cliche, you you can you can have page turner or unput downable. Like I had I just like it doesn't it doesn't like when you read a lot, it do, it actually doesn't happen that way often and you just got me, man. So that was cool.
1: Oh Andrew, thank you. It's honestly so nice to hear you say that. It mm. means a lot, genuinely. You know, one of my friends actually just read it and she said Uh, it's sitting with me and I don't know how to not sit with it. And I was like, I
0: feel like that's a good thing. (laughs) All righty. Here we go. Shall we? Let's go. Brilliant. You're on 2SER 107.3. This is Final Draft, books, writing, and literary culture. My name is Andrew Popel, and it is my great pleasure to be welcoming to the show, George Haddad. George is a writer and artist. He's won the Viva Novella Prize for Populate and Perish, the Neil Macydney Prize for his short story, Catharsis, He's a doctoral candidate and sessional tutor at the Writing and Society Research Centre at Western Sydney University. And most importantly, George joins us with his new novel, Losing Face. George, welcome. I loved this book. I can't wait to talk.
1: Thanks, Andrew. I really appreciate you having me. Um, I'm so excited to be on 2 scr
0: Thank you. And I I want to set it up a little bit for, for the listeners, for your future readers. Joey... Joey's 19. He's young enough to feel bulletproof, but far enough away from school to wonder if he should be doing something more. His friends aren't everything to him. His job is even less than that. But Joey feels like he's got more to offer. His family agree. His beloved tater Elaine worries about where he is heading. Joey's a spectator in his own life, and it seems that's about to lead him into a terrible situation. One that will change so many lives." We talked off air about the fact that I'm going to be a little bit vague in some of the details because there are, there are things I want people to discover for themselves in Losing Face. But I think a, a good place to start might be with the twinned narratives. We have Joey, he's young, he's disaffected, he's seemingly he's a little bit indifferent to where his life is going. Elaine, his his tata, his grandmother. She feels old, and she can't forget though that she was once young. And if she had the chance, she would probably do a lot more with the chances she sees Joey squandering. What was important to you? Why these two voices, and what was important in juxtaposing them in the narrative? I think it was really important uh,
1: to write from two perspectives that we don't very often hear from in Australian literature. I think most of the kind of perspectives that we do hear from are from that kind of 20 to 50 year old range. Um, And this was a bit of a blend. So we're hearing from someone who is quite young. Um, I'd say he's quite a young 19 year old uh, because he hasn't had as many formative experiences as other 19 year olds have had. And I think Um, kind of juxtaposing that with the perspective of his grandmother, who's in her 60s, allowed me to play with uh, the narrative. It allowed me to play with perspective and to hear from two perspectives that we don't usually hear from, like I said, but in one book, um, which for some reason I saw some kind of power in that.
0: They are really incredible. And one of the reasons I wanted to ask is because this book is populated with incredible Memorable for varying reasons, but really uh, beautifully realized characters. And I think at the heart of that question was I, I feel like you could have given us so many of these characters' point of view. So it's really interesting to to hear why those two. I'm also really curious. Oh, sorry. Did I? No, off? no, I was just going to say, I think that they're related. Mm. It's made it really easy. And I
1: think because I was focusing on the family unit, potentially could have been a little bit more uh, irrelevant to hear from someone outside of the family. But then I've also had people wonder why the mother, um, why Joey's mother wasn't um, and Elaine's daughter wasn't, you know, a, a
0: perspective. And I have no answer for that. <laughs> okay. You, yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for asking yourself the question that I actually, <laughs> yeah. I, I had, but I failed to ask. My my take on that, as I as I read through, I actually thought, what you were doing in avoiding giving us the direct POV of Joey's mum is that her story and the unfolding of, of how that impacts Joey's life is is so much better in the the drip feed. So I, I feel like if we mm-hmm. were if we were inside her perspective, you maybe couldn't have drip fed that to us as much. I I, I found her story very affecting as seen through Joey's coming to realise of it. I think so too, and 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 Joey's
1: mother, Amal, she has that kind of three hundred and sixty degree perspective uh, off the whole situation because she knows her mother and she knows her son, and so maybe if we did hear from Amal, then we wouldn't get that kind of uh, tension in in the narrative in in being fed things as as they kind of have happened.
0: I also want to ask as we begin your prologue. There is a, a story an an interesting story that, as we lead into the novel, I think most readers are going to think this is this is pregnant with meaning, even if I don't understand it just yet and it 's a story taking us back thousands of years of a jinn who steals away the manhood of a group of boys in the desert. I was hoping you could just elaborate a little bit on this myth and the importance of it in i guess exploring intersection of cultures in losing face.
1: Yeah, I think um,
0: I, I wrote that. I wrote that prologue uh, genuinely at the beginning of, of
1: the story, uh, and it coloured the narrative for me, and it coloured the kind of themes and, and what happened throughout the story. And um, I kind of came to it when I was thinking about how how kind of uh, inherited trauma can play into what we end up being and who we end up being in society. And often we think about that kind of immediate uh, traumas or things that have happened in the immediate past. But I wanted to think about what may have happened, you know, thousands of years ago, like you said. Uh, And also then play with space and play with place uh, and migration and see how that would have played out, you know, in the desert and then also in the suburbs of Western Sydney. Mm. Um, Yeah, and it was primarily for me a comment on gender uh, and how that played out in a tribal sense and then, you know, in a very contemporary sense as well, but still has a connection. There's still a connection between that story and what is happening with Joey in, you know, the very real 2019
0: there is so much I want to unpack. Maybe a little bit spoilery stuff that um, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of put a cork in that, especially around the idea of of manhood masculinity losing it gaining it what it means in the novel because i also want you to take us as we're, as we're just establishing here to the suburbs of losing face you've talked to us there about space and too often sydney is portrayed as the harbour or the beaches or it's siloed into a diner's passport of culinary experiences you know we'll we'll pop in for a trip and then leave Tell me about where the story of Losing Face occurs and how moving through these spaces shapes the narrative.
1: I mean, we've had an amazing array of writing coming out of Western Sydney and incredible stories coming out of Western Sydney. And this is just another story that speaks to the very rich culture, the very diverse culture, uh, the very different kinds of people that inhabit those spaces that we don't often see in uh, popular literature or, or popular television. Um, and I couldn't help but write these characters because these are the kind of characters that I know intimately and that I know well and that I've grown up with. Um, and I think focusing on that and trying to kind of place them in their space uh, made for a more interesting narr- narrative than, than kind of taking them out of that space. Mm. Uh, Seeing someone in situ, there's something really poetic and beautiful about seeing someone in their space and seeing them interact with their space and the people that are in there. Uh, And, yeah, that just was something that I was really trying to achieve, I guess.
0: Can you take us even uh, maybe into the micro of that? Because I feel, I feel like even when we say Western Sydney, that we're doing a disservice. Like we're we're, we're creating this homogenized mass um, that you know if you're if you're not up in Western Sydney or if you don't um, if you don't have a, an aside, like I, let's just I'll just call it as I'm calling it. If you're in Eastern Sydney, you know if you're. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> even even in the Inner West, which is highlighted Absolutely. in your narrative, can you take us into the micro? Like, Joey is moving between suburbs. How does mm. that shape his view of the space that he's moving through and what does it mean to him personally?
1: Well, it's very insular for him. You know, he's only very
0: quite used to Greenacre.
1: And so even when he moves a short distance to, to Bankstown or he goes a short distance to Liverpool, there's a whole set of different realities and people and, uh, you know, rules and values that are associated with those spaces. Uh, And I think that's something that's, you know, so fantastic about Western Sydney is that you can literally go from, you can go go a kilometre from from your home and you're experiencing another realm and completely different space uh, with its own set of ideas
0: and people. It comes, I guess, with... Look, I want to I want to initially frame it as opportunity, but in this question we uh, maybe interrogate that a little bit because both Elaine and Joey are are navigating who they are in their worlds. Um, Elaine and, and I feel like Joey Joey manages to pull focus. I mean that's part partly the nature of what happens in the story. I guess that's partly the nature of of young men. Like when we're when we're young, we we can be a little bit tunnel vision and everything is about us. So I'm going to focus this question on Elaine. Elaine, she came to Australia from a village in Lebanon through a marriage to an older man. She spent her life negotiating with the world her identity as a woman, her identity as a wife, her identity as a mother and a grandmother, as well as who this country, as well as who Australia, with its you know, quite often barely hidden racism, is going to let her be as an immigrant So, I wanted to focus in on identity. What did you want to say about walking in two worlds or more than two worlds and having to constantly negotiate identity in the space that you're in?
1: Uh, I think
0: I wanted to highlight that it can be absolutely debilitating
1: uh, on a daily basis, but there's also a power to it and a uh, a special kind of quality uh, to it in that it makes you more of an enlightened person. You're more kind of uh, adept at dealing with situations as they arise because you're used to, you know, having one foot in one place and one in the other. Um, Elaine has become a person that is completely uh, shaped by her experience of being in Australia, but also of her experience, of short experience of, of being a Lebanese woman in the village. Um, these are two things that kind of uh, helix throughout her, her life and she can't genuinely escape them. They're just part of who she is and that's how she sees the world around her as that child from the village in Lebanon and as uh, you know, a woman who was brought to womanhood very, very quickly in a space that she had no idea about.
0: You do this thing I'm just going to flag this. I've, I've learned through my history of interviewing that sometimes I I make comments, not questions, and it gets really confusing whether I'm asking mm-hmm. something. I'm going to flag this as a comment. You do this incredible thing where both Joey, but also I'm going to uh, keep highlighting Elaine here. You You teach us to love them, which is an incredible thing to do in the short space of a novel. Like even three to 400 pages is a very short space to come to love a character, but you do it without nostalgia. I, I thought there, as you were talking about her childhood and her, her you know, youth in the village. And then there is a scene, a part later in the film where you talk about how I think it was Alex had tried to set her up online so that she might be able to communicate uh, via messenger or something like that with, With the village, and she was she resisted. She has no sentimentality about that. She she doesn't think that there is some sort of halcyon days that she can harken back to. Is it? Were you conscious that you were going to help the reader love these characters, and did that grow for you, or were you in love with them from the outset? Mm
1: I think I have to be completely honest. I did not write Joey and Elaine for people to fall in love with them. And for, for people to have that kind of reaction is, uh, amazing. And it makes me feel like, you know, uh, writing is more than what I am trying it, for it to be. You know, sometimes it escapes you and, and people have reactions to it that you're not, um, entirely uh, trying to curate. And that's a beautiful thing because it kind of lends, the text to the reader and it allows them to, to play with it, which is brilliant. But I must admit I did fall in love with both of them, Mm. Um, very early on when I was writing them and I still feel, uh, and I still, I still think about them. I I kind of catch myself thinking about Jolie and Elaine, uh, because they're so fully realized to me and maybe to to some readers, but to me, they are really a symbol of a lot of people that I know and,
0: uh, care about. Mm. That's really interesting to me. I mean, I, I, I'm glad you. I, I, I'm glad everyone will come to love them, but it felt so much. There, there is an unspoken moment that we will get to uh, that drives the the action of sort of the latter half of the novel, and I feel like our our connection and and the stakes that we feel as that as we drive towards the conclusion very much hinges on how we feel about Joey and Elaine because if if you don't care for Joey, if you don't come to care for Joey, particularly, I feel like the stakes could be quite low there. Um, But of course, Elaine is constantly drawing us back into that because she loves Joey, but she doesn't know how to feel about this situation as it emerges. And perhaps this is as good a point as any to mention that there is, there is a pivotal moment that Joey is involved in that we then have to come to terms with. Um, Can I take you to that moment? And again, we're, I'm keeping it vague. You do what you need. Can you tell me about writing the scene, this pivotal moment? Because did you feel pressure to portray the action and people's responses in particular ways?
1: So much pressure. uh, And I was genuinely worried about, you know, what I was doing there because uh, it's a very, you know, tough subject to deal with. Uh, And I wanted to make sure that I wasn't using uh any kind of tropes or any um basically wasn't doing any trauma porn kind of stuff
0: (laughs) the Um, the trauma porn came into my head too yeah it's just i I was
1: really conscious of not doing that because for me the reason why uh and and this kind of speaks to that question about perspective the reason why i had elaine comment on also what's going on there is to demonstrate that often these young men in these situations, these perpetrators aren't entirely evil. Uh, And they're put in these places, they do abhorrent things, but how can we show that there is some kind of uh, other side to the story without diminishing who's at the centre of
0: it, really? Mm. You create this really interesting moral paradox for the reader um, because we want to like Joey. You've shown us, you've shown us that he's he's a little bit hopeless. He's a lot bit hopeless, um, but he he can see that and he wants to change. He sort of he's in that classic situation of I want to do something. I just don't know how. to – I don't know what it is, and I don't know how to start. Mm-hmm. But as he comes to face some legal action, we. Also, from the larger narrative, know that there is a possibility that no one will be punished, and that feels that that feels very tough. It feels very tough as you as you zoom in on Joey. Were you looking to highlight? I guess oh, this is such a tough question because I want to I want to really acknowledge that there is an intersection here. Um, this may have played out very differently if we were talking about. Uh, you know, white blonde head, eastern suburbs boys, um, in the similar in a similar situation, and the way that society um, frames the narrative around this. But were you trying to highlight the impunity that men can enjoy within the the legal system? Absolutely.
1: Uh, and I did a lot of research around these kinds of cases uh, in Australia and sometimes overseas, and uh, in a lot of a, a lot of cases men are let off perpetrators are let off for these kinds of crimes uh, and so it was really important to me to demonstrate that that is often the case um, yeah which it was it was terrifying and debilitating but you know it,
0: it is the case mm. I want to zoom in I, I this was something there was there's this passage towards the middle of the book that was just absolutely fantastic. It's it's highly quotable, in, incredibly sort of thought-provoking, um, and it happens in the line for pizza. <laughs> so um, Elaine, her daughter, Joey's mum, Amal, and Joey's brother, Alex, are going to the club for pizza. Uh, Amal is surprised, maybe concerned, that Elaine still frequents clubs. And as they wait in line... Elaine has this kind of time to think, and from that perspective and the conversation that they have, I wanted to lean in a little bit. So, Elaine is considering what she calls space to breathe. Her history, that of her family, they're closing in on her, but she sees also, as she thinks about their history together, in Joey's father and his paternal grandparents this um who are sort of anglo-british sort of descended australians um they had this idea this throwing off of guilt i think she describes it and you connect this to privilege and it you know it's not a good thing in the way we can see it playing out can you tell me about this this idea this idea that elaine has of space to breathe and how it connects to privilege Well, essentially,
1: she's kind of commenting on the fact that, uh, you know, white Australians have been here for so long. Uh, Their early ancestors did all the the kind of really abhorrent work of making or staking a claim to this place. And so what that's done is uh, kind of knock on effect for the later generations to not have to deal with issues uh, of displacement or issues of, uh, you know, feeling other they are they've been here for a long time. Their their identity is entrenched. Um, Their wealth is entrenched. Uh, They understand the space because, or they understand the space intimately and and deeply because their families have been there for so long. Uh, And I think what that does is it creates space uh, or kind of, uh, it allows the mind to breathe uh, because they're not worried about other things like, you know, being discriminated against or, uh, you know, uh, employment. Um, and I think that's what Elaine is commenting on. She's kind of wishing that her grandsons who do have some access to that privilege, uh, could have had a better way of of navigating it, but Mm -hmm. she blocked it off essentially.
0: I mean, I think, yeah, we've got these these kind of twinned um, ideas here of intergenerational trauma. So the the trauma that is carried down because of violences that were committed in the past, and the mm-hmm. fully and, and and in this is in the process of invasion and dispossession that's happened Absolutely. on this land, and then the flip of that, which we see so often, to to the highest levels of power in this country, where people. Uh, will say that was that was then, that wasn't us that was, you know can't we, can't we all just move beyond it? And yeah. the two, I mean the one plays into the other and, and seems to compound this, uh, but I- in doing so creates that space to breathe. Mm. And even in saying those
1: kinds of things like, let's try and move beyond it, that is a privileged thing to say because mm. you have the ability to move beyond it because you're not worried about other things day to day
0: because all of that kind of uh, really uh, stressful or dirty work has been done for you. Mm. I want to also now get move to performing culture and this really interesting thing that you do through Joey. Um, you talked there about Elaine wanting or wishing this space to breathe for her grandchildren and Joey at numerous times throughout the nar- narrative he's contemplating himself. Um, when he keeps his hair a little bit longer, he might be able to pass for, you know, uh, a white Anglo Aussie, but when he shaves it off, he's like, no, now I look more leb. Um, Amal talks, there's this great sequence where Amal's talking about her, I, like, it's like her post-high school, pre-uni type of travel, her gap year, whatever we want to call it, mm-hmm. being in Europe and people being less aware of their culture while in Australia there is a performance. Mm-hmm. But without that uh, performance, Australia would be, in Elaine's world, words, a blank stage. Mm-hmm. Um, does the performance of culture support... Australian culture, like for whatever value of that we can meaningfully ascribe, like do we does does modern Australia as as was created in in the minds of the English two hundred and fifty odd years ago, does that even have a meaningful culture without people performing every single day? You know, that's a really tough question to answer. Um... Just a little question, yeah, just just. Sort out 250 years of cultural <laughs> creation for me, George, and, and then you can have dinner.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure how to answer it. I just I do think that Australian culture has become very much so uh, kind of synonymous with a performance of culture. Uh, and there are many factors as to why we've done that and how we've kind of gotten to that point. Uh, and one being the one that Elaine discusses is that she was afraid and, and all the other immigrants at the same time uh, were afraid that if they did kind of uh play to, to what Australia expected of them, that they would be homogenized essentially and kind of have this erasure of of their past and of who they were.
0: Is that a core conundrum then for Joey? He he finds himself at a point where the the system of education has stopped giving him a track and a and guidance. He's 19. Mm-hmm. He, more than anything, more than the job or the the degree, or, he has to choose the performance of culture that he is going to take into mm-hmm. his later life. Mm.
1: And he he plays with it, and I think he he he's even more hyper, kind of aware of it because he knows. And even though he doesn't have an amazing relationship with his father, he knows that he has uh, you know, white Australian ancestry. Uh, and there's even a, there's a point, uh, where he's speaking to his father and he says, you know, what's it like on the gold coast? And I think for Joey, he's wondering, you know, could I, could I be white Australian? Could I, could I leave Greenacre and, and be someone else, uh, purely because I have that in me. Um, and I think that's something, that is a testament to, even though the fact that he's, he's quite a lost character, he is somewhat introspective. He, he does give some thought to who he is and how he's come to be and how he could
0: continue being. Mm-hmm. So much of this is connected to masculinity. What it is, does it exist, when it exists? Yeah. Is it a force of, of positive or, or negative action in our world? You explore, and this is this is not exclusively um, focused on Joey, you actually explore a myriad of characters who are masculine in their own ways for values of that. At formative times, you explore them in relation to each other. It's spectacular to watch. What I really wanted to hear about was how you wanted to deal with this, and I'm, I want to throw you a curveball, because I'm going to highlight Alex. Um, what I saw in Alex was really interesting. It felt despite him being a, a relatively minor character, he also came to represent the opposite of, of everything else. He's almost kind of a hope that's bigger than the story in his masculinity.
1: I'm really glad you picked up on that because I think what Alex is is the kind of um, eventual harmony that has... or well, the eventual harmony of, of gender... In that family, and in that kind of construct, and in that space, uh, after all of these thousands years, thousands of years of this family, I think in Alex uh, we find the end result, which is something that's kind of harmonious and accepting and beautiful.
0: Yeah, it's it's brilliant. There's the the scene with um, with Elaine who, I mean, even if we just consider the, the age difference, you know, there's, there's 45, 50 years between them. And Alex seems to have this incredible beauty in the way he is able to speak up but speak respectfully. Um, he's able to challenge the authority that tater, his tater represents to him while also respecting the... The, the I guess the power that he had like just in terms of gender and the the you know his gender gives him a certain power in that dynamic as well um yeah just just I loved it every time Alex popped up I was just like I want to hear more from you
1: <laughs> yeah he was absolutely the end the, the kind of symmetry or, or poetry behind it all uh, and I'm so glad that that you know came, that came out
0: mm. um so I want to highlight we've 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 skirted around this incredible moment that drives forward the narrative creates incredible tension. And I'm just going to jump to the end uh, because I'm really curious. You resist the narrative urge to ride off into the sunset. And I know this isn't the reality of the story. You've talked about that. Uh, The novel is still fresh. It's obviously been, you know, years in the making for you. But I wondered by way of asking about this ending, do you, do you you know? Do you contemplate? Do you wonder how Joey, how Elaine, even how Lisa and the others are going?
1: Yeah. <laughs> when I sent the first uh, copy edits back, or no, actually the final uh, edit back to the. Uh Publisher, I sat on, uh, sat on the loo and I cried and I wondered what the hell Elaine and Joey were doing and where they were and if they were happy. Uh, and I couldn't really come to a, an absolute consensus, but I cried for them. I cried for where they, where they kind of ended up and, and who they are now. Um, and you know, this story kind of ends in 2019. So been, there's been three years, uh, since since the end of that story. So, who knows what could have happened for them. But they're very close to my heart, and yeah, I, I, I genuinely care for them.
0: It's a hard story. I mean, a, a different way to ask that question would be, you know, is there a losing face too? And it, it seems self-evident to me that there isn't. It's not, it, it's not a book that demands a sequel as much as we may want more from the characters, but... I, I think it's enough to know that when they're as they remain in our and the readers' hearts, they're also in yours. Absolutely. And I, I'm, I'm glad that they remain in, in some of the readers' hearts. <laughs> George, I am going to now um, set up the Sydney Writers' Festival question. Mm-hmm. Okay. Excellent. All right, I'm speaking with George Haddad. We are discussing Losing Face. It is, uh, I am just unashamedly gushing about how much I love this book. It is George's new book. And George, you're part of the stellar Sydney Writers Festival lineup and just a casual glance at uh, dropping the website here swf.org.au for all the details it shows me you must be just about one of the hardest working writers at the festival you've got an event on almost every day and on some of the days too i'm not going to try and capture these in a single question I'm, i'm throwing it to you can you give a highlight maybe one of the events that you're looking forward to being a part of
1: I'm really excited to be on the panel with Christos Solkis and Amy Tunick and uh, Tony Birch and, and, you know, have a chat about class and and place and uh, identity. I think they're the kind of topics that I'm really, that are really close to my heart, that I've written for, uh, written about for my PhD and I love reading about as well. And I think they're really important topics to think about in this Australian space and so uh yeah that's that's probably the one that i'm most excited about i love a yarn and i think it would be a really intense yarn
0: i think and because we move from this homogenized idea of a classless society as soon as you unpack that as soon as you open it up to the idea that that's a comfortable myth there Mm -hmm. is going to be so much to discuss and what a panel um I love all of those guys. So, I, yeah, I'm going to try and get along to that one. That Would I be right in thinking, is that one of the free events too? So, people haven't got an excuse. It is free, a
1: free event. Yeah, all you need to do is register. Uh, no, you don't register. You actually just turn up.
0: You just make, make sure, I, I, I read this yeah. on the website, make sure you turn up early so you are not disappointed and you would That's be it. disappointed. Exactly. Just don't be disappointed. Just get there and line up. <laughs> Sydney Writers Festival. What a moment. You can grab yourself a copy of Losing Face while you're at the festival and just marvel in this incredible narrative. I am speaking with George Haddad. Losing Face is his new novel and it has been just a terrific, a terrific chat, George. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. I really appreciate the chat. And that was, yeah, that was so much fun. Thank you for indulging the, the vagaries of the question. I mean, I really, you know, one thing I really want to ask you that I'm just going to just drop yeah, it in you. here at the end. Yeah. The end of the novel goes all like courtroom procedural, but in such a, like in a, in a not courtroom procedural way, like were you, were you trying to do that? Were you trying to avoid that? Was, what, what, was in, what was in your mind as you were writing
1: it was a really
0: tough thing to do because I had to
1: balance my storytelling and my style and my voice with this really kind of, uh, factual, evidential, uh, kind of work. And, and I had to flesh out the story I had to tell the story in the space of the courtroom. Um, and I'm inter- I mean, how, how, how do you mean you thought that it was kind of not, um, not courtroomish. ish. Like, so, how did you, what
0: okay. do you mean by that? So, I mean, it, it has all the element – When I say it's not courtroom procedural, I mean, like there's, oh, you know, when you, you, you know, when you, like uh, if we're thinking about a, a TV kind of courtroom procedural, mm. they have a certain energy. Sure. And I, there's a cliche to it. And I think you did right. what you did. Without indulging the cliche, like I mean, you know, there there are there are shows like, um, the Law and Order, say type shows, just to pick one yeah. that I've actually watched, where you know that as gripping as it is, there is someone out there with a with a paint by numbers Law and Order <laughs> episode, and they can pump them out for season after season totally I think the nature
1: of what was happening is probably what kind of pulled it out of the cliche um but absolutely when I was writing it I was like this sounds like crime fiction what the hell am I doing mm-hmm. but I also was so fine with it because it was only a little short portion of the of the
0: novel and it felt kind of like a nice break mm. from from the storytelling did you did you find you had to reference and rewrite I, I kept called it the scene because the other thing that I felt like you just there was this amazing through line from that scene to the courtroom because of course you you do something that often procedural don't you give us an eye view on the crime so we are able to it's not it's not until you really show us that the law is set up in the way that these young men are going to get off that we um I mean, that's when the full weight of what you're showing us in the courtroom comes to pass. We we find out what's What was his name? The, the the We find out that boxer is a boxer. Is that his okay. name? Boxer. Yeah. It's boxer that we find out before Joey's trial. He's already gotten off. He's already been cleared. Yeah. Um, and so there's this. In you you set up this enormous tension for Joey's trial. We agree that Joey's role is is probably not going to meet certain thresholds but then you show us oh no there's a different evidentiary burden um we know that joey was was drugged um in a way that was almost beyond his um his wishes we know that he was beaten up and it's just like the way the two scenes play against each other really does so much to serve the driving force towards the end of the novel and i just yeah yeah
1: I'm so glad you picked up on all of that. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that we know Joey and that we saw what happened through his perspective. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, we can't help but but take that into account.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's a whole line of questioning around reliable and unreliable narrators that would just,
1: yeah. we don't oh, need to, we'll be here for hours. We don't need to go there
0: tonight. George, (laughs) mate, this was brilliant. Thanks so much for taking time out of your evening. So much for having me, Andrew. I
1: genuinely appreciate it. And thank you so much for what you thought about the book. It, it, It really means a lot.
0: That's it for this great conversation with George Haddad. George's new book is Losing Face. It's out now through the University of Queensland Press. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunangara people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Look for the handle at FinalDraft2SER. Thank you for joining me. We've been doing a lot of content of artists appearing at Sydney Writers Festival. Check out uh, the socials for a list of some of those artists or just go back through your podcast. There are so many incredible Australian writers to discover. If you want new conversations every week. You know, you don't have to search for them. Hit subscribe. Wherever you are listening to your podcast, you will get a little subscribe button. It means every week a new interview is going to pop into your feed. Also, our weekly short book club segments introducing you to new Australian writing. I am Andrew Popel. I'm going to be back very soon with more great conversations from Final Draft. There's still more Sydney Writers Festival stuff to come. Thanks for joining me and till next time, happy reading. Bye now.